Alright, ready? Here we go. Today is Monday, August 4th, 2014, and this is episode 78 of the Defensive Security Podcast. And joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, we're back. Sorry yes. we missed a week. We are back. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I sincerely apologize. Uh, the, the piece of equipment has been ejected from the house and will not return until it's fixed. <laughs> Jerry's not allowed to tell you. The NSA is trying to silence us. That's right. We we actually did record, but our lawyers wouldn't let us release it. So, or, but or, we're back now. Or or maybe it's a it's one of those uh, national security let. Oh, shoot! Yeah. I can't well, talk about that. If we had not gotten a national security letter, we would now be saying at this point we have never received a national security letter. That's true. But you can't keep a good podcast down. That's true. Anyhow, so uh, again, apologies for last week. Uh, you know, our as I mentioned on Twitter, our DR plan failed epically, and and well, we'll we'll be refunding everybody's money. It's true. Anyhow, uh, getting into uh, to our stories this week. Uh, first up is a story from Naked Security, and this one is titled. Bad USB. What if you could never trust a USB device again? Holy cow. That is ominous. So uh, so basically this is a media firestorm about a talk that actually hasn't been given yet. Uh, so, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, but basically my understanding uh, and the, the author of this this uh, report has the understanding that this is about an attack, or at least a hypothetical attack, where commodity or some subset of commodity USB devices can have their firmware reprogrammed. And uh, I would interpret it that in the process of reprogramming it, you could make, you know, let's say a USB device or a mouse act kind of like a PNC or a rubber ducky. Uh, although, you know, there's a startling lack of really any detail yet, but uh, that hasn't stopped the masses of media from from jumping all over this one. Well, there's a couple ways to get your talk well attended at DEF CON and Black Hat. Is one, allege that it was banned. Oh, good, good. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, two, uh, allege that your employer won't let you give it uh, and quit so you can give it. Yeah, that's that's another good one. And three, get some media outlet to pick it up and run with it, uh, or or many media outlets. Right, as the case may be here. Um, but you know, it's it is uh, it is interesting. I was actually thinking this afternoon about you know, kind of pondering back to Bad BIOS, which this is named after, right? And thinking about. Again, we don't know what what actually is going to come out in this talk yet, but uh, a lot of the pieces of bad BIOS are starting to come to fruition. That's true. We've seen, you know, uh, sonic communications. Right. We've seen that. We've seen uh, some of the NSA disclosures about uh, the the, uh, BIOS hijacking. I forget the code name off the top of my head right now, but... Uh, we saw that. Now we see we see this. So you know, I, and I, and by the way, I have to wonder if uh, if bad BIOS is not the uh, the impetus for behind some of this research, which in and of itself is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the article here, as you mentioned, is light on details, but you know, in, in essence, it alleges that anything can write to the USB firmware, right. and then you have no idea what's going on. Well, if I can read and write to the BIOS firmware. Couldn't I easily add some code to validate the firmware hasn't been messed with? Well, I think that's the that's probably going to end up being the point is that some kind of protection needs to be put in place 
You know, the, I think one of the suggestions in there was you know, making some kind of a button that you have to hold before reflashing the firmware or something like that. But, um, you know, this is, a, this is, again, one of those complicated problems of, of not being able to trust everything or anything, really. And uh, depending on how easy this is and how pervasive the problem is, it, yeah, it could be a problem or, or it could just be a, a novelty, I guess. Well, everybody wants to have a popular talk, right? And everybody wants to find something really wild and impressive. So I guess until we see the actual slide deck and some of the research and ideally proof of concept code, and I'm not panicking over this yet. Uh, you know, I never, I'll never, uh, never pass up a chance to panic, so. It's true. It's true. In fact, I, if the Ebola I, doesn't get you... The bad USB will. I thought I saw you on an overpass <laughs> protesting the Ebola patient as he drove through town. Yep, that's right. I'm, I'm pretty sure. And then, right. and then you got confused with the whole Gaza-Israel protesters, and it just they were very confused by your signage. They didn't understand at all. I mean, I'm just trying to kill many birds with one sign. <laughs> So, anyhow, yes, <laughs> let's move on. So, our next story uh, <laughs> next story comes from CSO Online, and the title is "Insecure." <clears throat> excuse me, insecure connections. Enterprise enterprises hacked after neglecting third party risks. Jeez, you take a week off and look how rusty you are, Ooh, man. I know, I know. You're supposed to be a broadcast professional. <sighs> I guess I'm not up for a raise, am I? <laughs> We'll get you back in the swing. All right. So, uh, so this story comes in as a result of a survey that CSO did with a number of other groups, and they they polled about 500 executives and security experts. And what they found was that there's actually de- an apparent declining population of people who are vetting third party IT suppliers. So, in 2012, it was. Fifty-four percent, and last year was forty-four percent. So, um, you know, uh, uh, an interesting reduction. The statistician in me wonders if that is a relic of just the population size and who they who they pulled. Hard to say, but you know, it is a uh, it is kind of concerning that it the, the net number whoever they pulled isn't higher. Uh, they go on to say that seventy percent of enter- of these enterprises sign agreements with. IT vendors without conducting any kind of security checks and that 92% don't have any supply chain risk management abilities, which, uh, you know, which is, you know, I know we've talked about this in the past and certainly this was uh, kind of a key attribute of the target fiasco. Um, there's uh, I guess there's, well, let me go into his recommendation, right? So, uh, one of the one of the ideas brought up here is that you know look you got to you got to prioritize your vendors and the, he brings up the point and I'll read the quote you don't have to start looking at everyone at first but you have to at least start with looking at those partners who create the most risk for your organization and my one of my concerns with that and obviously that's good advice right one of the concerns i've seen in the past is how do you know who has the most risk, right? And if you were to go back and ask Target, how would they rate Fazio Mechanical as a, you know, as a, in terms of risk? And I think that kind of points back to not not being very mature in the in the realm of threat modeling and understanding the way things interconnect and in the interplay. So. Um, yeah, there there are some interesting points, right? Like vendor management is difficult. And I've been on both sides of that, and I know you have too. And usually it's a big spreadsheet game. You know, where you you come up with a bunch of crappy questions and your vendor makes up a bunch of answers. And everybody goes back on, you know, back on their merry way and feels, you know, feels good about it, and then I guess if something goes horribly wrong, one party can, you know, point fingers at the other. Uh, but 
this is I think this is more complicated than that. One of the one of the ideas this um, this person they interviewed here had was to ask some relatively simple questions, like, do you have a CISO, or do you have a you know do you have AV on your your computers, which are really dumb questions. But if they if the vendor gives you an odd answer, that might point you to uh, to to want to dig deeper. Um, whereas if they answer yes, you might not pay them as much mind. But again, you know, I I, I suspect Fazio Mechanical said they did have AV, right? Even though it was it was uh, uh, malware bytes, you know, home edition. Well, although Malwarebytes recently judged as one of the best malware cleaners. Uh, and by the way, I'm, uh, that's not a knock on Malwarebytes, right? No, I know. I, I understand. Well, and this is my concern when I read this story is this feels very much like you mentioned earlier. They're just going to answer what they need to answer to get the business. I'm not saying they're going to lie, but they're going to lie. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think that may not necessarily be the way I would go about it. I don't think it's a bad idea to ask folks, right? But you're trusting their answers. And and keep in mind that that is a snapshot in time of wherever they're at at that moment. You're not responsible for their IT and their security, but you are going to own the consequence of it. So perhaps you're much better off treating third parties the way we used to and isolating the hell out of them. And what I see is that these third-party connections are way too wide open at the firewalls, if it even goes through a firewall. And I don't know if this is a symptom of either the system is being lazy, uh, the security architects being lazy, or them being overworked. But when I was in a position to do this stuff, I used to drive people crazy because I would force them to tell me exactly what needed to be connected to exactly what ports and exactly what what you know IP addresses on both ends. The problem is it's way too easy for folks to just go, ah, eh, they're just so-and-so. They just need to talk to that general network over there, and I don't know what ports. Just open it up. So you're broadening this attack service dramatically, and you're also allowing sloppiness throughout the organization. But I, I think this is in part a symptom of the IT guys being way overworked and not having the time to go, well, let's talk about that for a moment. And the organization running way too fast. Uh, I, I, I suspect you're right about that last point for sure. You know, we, we, uh, we, you know, let's face it, you know, we're, we're, um, we're in business to support the business and, and make money. And, Usually, I think more and more, at least, a lot of organizations are taking a posture that, you know, we need to minimize or at least optimize these costs. And so so I think that does tend to to pull some of that opportunity for introspection and inspection away, you know, because now you're, you're constantly firefighting or, or trying to stand up the next new thing. In my mind, I would treat all third-party connections as an internet connection. And that may mean a DMZ, that may mean an isolated server segment. I, I, I would just treat them as hostile. Absolutely. I think that's really, really good advice. I think the other, the other concern I've got, though, is that I see it, and it's, I think it's been borne out in a lot of things, is, or a lot of these breaches lately, is people have, a, I think, a, an overconfidence in uh, in the the security of different systems that they've that they have running right whether it's uh, you know Ackles and Windows or or the integrity of an app of a you know of a application sitting out on their DMZ or or what have you you know they they don't they don't question what could go wrong and inevitably that's what goes wrong and you know it it's it's difficult and it's expensive but you kind of have to design for failure you know unless somebody comes up with you know magical systems that are you know are both easy to run and you know cost effective and uh and and provably secure you know we're we're stuck here you've got to design for failure you've got to plan for that yeah and and it takes away that sort of graduated risk model of 
if you treat them all as hostile. But again, that's going to take more work. And that's going to take convincing folks, and it's going to slow them down. And it's not a matter of just opening up a firewall port. And, you know, so to expand on this, when I was designing networks that that needed to talk to other networks or talk to the internet, uh, nothing from the internet ever got to the internal side ever directly. It always had to go through some sort of DMZ, and we had multiple layers of DMZs uh, that you know the external. Uh, unauthenticated anonymous connections were in one DMZ and had a whole bunch of stuff watching that and very isolated stuff. And then those guys could only talk to certain servers like a backend database server on a different DMZ. And just you've got these layers that you have to get through. Uh, it makes it very difficult for somebody to do something without getting noticed coming out of those. But that was non-trivial to set up. But how important is your security? That's yeah, the fundamental question. Right. And it's also cumbersome to to use, more cumbersome than having yeah. everything wide open. So, But that is the cost, right? That's the cost Absolutely. you have to factor in. Yep. Um, you know, it's not a matter of just throwing a shiny, blinky box out there. A lot of times these problems are architectural problems. I 100% agree with that. All right. Well, I think we uh, we kicked that one in the teeth. <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> Our, uh, our next story is uh, also from CSO, and the title is Security Manager's Journal, a ransomware flop thanks to security awareness. And this is, a, I guess, a, essentially an op-ed by a person named Matthias Thurman. And, uh, and I, I would sum it up by saying this is an anecdote about an organization that Mat- Matthias works for who was the the recipient of a phishing email uh, that apparently went to one of their distribution lists. Uh, And I guess 25 or 30 people got it. Only one person fell for it. And, you know, that this was uh, just kind of garden variety fish that got them some crypto locker love. Uh, Fortunately, the person that was infected uh, had had a recent backup. So kind of no harm, no foul, and that was the point of this, right? This this one person was the only the only uh, one impacted. All the other people that received the email said that they didn't open it because they remember back to their uh, security awareness training. And um, you know that that sounds like a big happy story, right? But um, I gotta tell you, I guess if you're if you're if you're concerned about CryptoLocker, I suppose this is a you know this is a a good thing, right? But another way to look at it is somebody clicked on something that got malicious code to run inside your organization. If this had not been CryptoLocker, if this had not been something that popped up and said, "Oh, look at look at me," you know, pay me some bitcoins, your organization would be compromised upside and down, backwards and forwards, and you know it. it we would we would not be calling this a success of or you know, a triumph of security awareness training. Well, first, as most of our what are we up to eighteen regular listeners know, I'm not a fan of security awareness training. However, it actually worked in this case. So, to quote Family Guy, "What? <laughs> I wow, that was lame. Sorry that that joke sounded better in my head. I apologize in advance, or actually not in advance. In retrospect, yep. Right, moving on, whatever." Uh, so I guess this is a data point that security awareness training occasionally works and perhaps should be listened to. However, I do want to dive into something else on this story. Late, late, late in the story, they start sort of, uh, covering why other things failed. Oh, yes. Right. Uh, first of all, they had SPF turned off on their email server because they were troubleshooting an issue. I get it. That happens, but you need to be aware of the unintended consequences when you start fussing with things. They had AV running on the desktop, of course. So, quote, we've also sent an inquiry to our antivirus vendor asking why this ransomware wasn't deleted. And he goes on to say, I'm sure they're going to say it was due to being a zero-day exploit, but we have to ask, end quote. No, you don't have to ask. I personally think that's a waste of time. Yeah. I'm going to point that out right here. Absolutely. Going to your AV company going, why didn't you find this? You're wasting their time and yours. Give up. AV sucks. Sorry. 
what I find more interesting is the next line, which says, I've also contacted the vendor our advanced malware detection tool to ask why it didn't detect and block this since all downloaded files are supposed to be run in a sandbox, evaluated, and then blocked if determined to be malware. So that is probably a FireEye or FireEye-like product. Yep, that was my interpretation. Um, first of all, keep in mind that that's a little bit of a misleading statement because those products don't automatically block immediately. That file isn't prevented from getting to patient zero, but it'll detect it and warn you got to patient zero. So that's not quite true. However, I think that's actually a valid question to go ask those vendors. There is this idea in the marketplace right now that these malware sandbox detonation tools are perfect. They are not. They're good, and I recommend them, but they do miss stuff. And I'd be curious on the answer on that. Not that I think it'll ever be shared with us, but that actually intrigued me. Well, I think there's a, I think there's quite a number of evasion techniques being developed. And you know, look, if you're, if you're the purveyor of crypto locker, you, your, your job is to get, get it as many places as you, as you can. So you're going to, you know, you're going to make sure that it's custom packed. So Symantec or McAfee, can't catch it and that's you know that's what that's the problem right there and you know you're going to do something which i i think it's pretty well documented some of the the bypasses around FireEye and whatnot you're gonna you know you, you have financial incentive to work around it and you know maybe you even have one to try it on so i think this goes back to your question right and and the fundamental underlying comment that i'm trying to make here is they felt that these two layers of defenses should have stopped this. And I think what you were hinting at and, and what we've often said on the show is we've got to be better at detection yes. after, right? Yeah. How do you know something got popped? And, and, you know, other than, you know, something like this, which is very noisy, how are you going to detect it and know about it? Uh, uh, that's absolutely where I was going. Um, I think the other the other issue for me is you know, I guess there's there's really two different malware problems that you have. Number one is you've got the annoyance in the time sink, right, for your your help desk and for your the productivity of your employees. They get they get CryptoLocker and they have to have their computer reimaged, and and so so that is a a relatively quantifiable thing. I I get it. That makes a lot of sense from the perspective of um, of security awareness training because if you can, you know, if you can increase the uh, the awareness rate, uh, you know, and, and stop, you know, let's say two percent more people or three percent more people, that could save you a lot of money in the long run in in productivity and and whatnot. Uh, but the reality is, if if there's the other the, there's the other side that says, you know. If you're if you're if you're talking about something that is more sophisticated than CryptoLocker, or you know uh, what I would call an annoying malware, you know those those people who are opening it are still you know ba- basically providing an ample avenue into your organization, and it, it doesn't really matter that you know eighty percent of the people recognized it and didn't click on it. Because the twenty percent that did are now are now your your problem, and they're in, and you know it's it's not we're not talking about reimaging PCs. We're talking about your IP, or your your customer list, or your credit card database, or whatever being published everywhere. Yeah, I would agree. So, anyhow, uh, and and yeah, I completely agree with you on the AV front. I thought that was kind of, it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting point. I don't want to say it was, uh, it was cute. Right. But, um, you know, that was the thing that came to mind is I, I really think a lot of organizations are heavily reliant on antivirus and they, they really think that it does things that it simply cannot do. And, uh, you know, it, it, I'm sure AV is great at catching uh, a, a version of CryptoLocker that was packed last month. But it's not going to catch the one that's packed, you know, was packed this afternoon. It's true. So, 
I just, you know, I'm about high leverage activity. I hate wasting my time. Yeah, yeah. All right. Next story comes from Dark Reading. And uh, this, the title here is Seven Arrested, Three More Indicted for Roles in Cyber Fraud Ring that Stung StubHub. And the story here is, this is really interesting. And I, I, I brought it up for a particular point, right? So 10 people were indicted for a, a relatively, what I would call, innovative fraud ring in, uh, uh, that, that happened back last May, in, in May of 2013. Uh, apparently about 1,600 StubHub accounts. And for those who are not aware, StubHub is an online company here in the U.S., maybe in other countries too, uh, where you can you can buy and sell tickets to concerts and sporting events and whatnot, right? Uh, so, so anyhow, 1,600 accounts were, uh, were compromised, and then they were, they were uh, basically used by this ring of people to buy and sell about 3,500 tickets. This is pretty clever, right? Because what they, what they are essentially doing would, would be to you know, buy a ticket from someone and then, and then in turn sell it to someone else and that someone else was a, an account that was also controlled by them. And then basically they would just keep bouncing tickets around and the proceeds would be going into their respective PayPal accounts. Um, and in the end, StubHub actually ended up eating all this. And what was really interesting to me, and the reason I want to bring this up, is that there wasn't actually a vulnerability in StubHub's operations. This apparently, if you know, if, again, if the reporting is accurate, this happened as a result of 1,600 people's accounts being compromised because their passwords were found in other database dumps, right? And so what I find immensely interesting is this concept that StubHub is now on, you know, 1.6 million bucks because their customers, you know, it's, I don't want to say their customers bad behavior, right? But, but because of things that are completely outside of their control, you know, with the exception that, well, maybe they should have used two factor or, you know, or or something, right? But this is a this is really interesting that, you know, this isn't about pen testing their environment, right? Now you have your counterparty that you have to worry about is not your, you know, your vendor, right? It's your, it's your 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 uh you know your beer drinking, football watching customer. That's a really good point. You know, so in essence, they're reusing their password. That password gets popped someplace else, and the bad guys come and try it on StubHub, and lo and behold, it works. Yeah, now I, I just uh, just want to point out right there that is the hypothesis is that it was that it could have been phishing emails or you know ah, Zeus well, or you know we don't we don't know all, all we know is that they the, the attackers got passwords for sixteen hundred accounts somehow. Well, there are things. Uh, that I think these organizations probably should be doing. And, and with things like this happening, I think they're likely to be doing. We have preached and preached and preached and preached, don't reuse the same password on multiple sites. You use a password manager. It's kind of up there with user training. It's going to get through to some folks, and it's not going to get through to the others. So is it incumbent on these guys who could be incurring losses with this sort of behavior to start adding some sort of anti-fraud detection? Like, wow, you're coming from a completely different country today at three in the morning <laughs> yes perhaps that's not you anymore right uh go back to sites issuing passwords that's a crazy idea i think you know i, I gotta i want to beat on that for a second i think that is quite possibly one of the best things that sites could do and and people would hate it, right? But, they would. And then you could say the site knows my password. Not that most consumers know that they typically don't. Today. Most consumers would know that today sites don't know your password. But it would be difficult for the site to defend themselves if it were ever brought up in a court of law because they own the initial password creation if something were to happen. Right, right. Although in this case, they own... <laughs> Yeah, they own the risk either way, right? They, right. They're getting hit with 1.6 million. So, I don't know. It's 
relying on their customers to be secure is clearly failing them. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what, if anything, StubHub does as a result of that. Uh, I'm know. amazed this isn't happening to banks, right? Well, banks are a little better with this anti-fraud technology, but it would think that a bank would be a perfect target for this exact same type of attack, assuming that all this came from leaked databases, right? I assure you that the same username and passwords are probably being used on bank accounts. And people can get in there and transfer money around. Well, I mean, we, we know it. We know it happens some some of the time. I think it is a little more complicated. Most of them most of them have gone to some form of two factor. Usually, it's the really dumb picture thing. Yeah, that's true. Um, but you know, in fact, I think if you're FDIC insured or uh, any of the the insured branches, I think you actually have to use two factor for your online banking. But um, but even even that, we know. That you know, things like man in the browser are, you know, are real. So it, it's almost it's almost a moot point, right? Because they can they can they can just as easily see what picture you're picking. So true. Um, I, I, it's interesting. I don't know. I, there's there's not a lot of details I've seen about retail uh, internet banking fraud. I, I don't know. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, be interesting to kind of do some more research into, but. Nonetheless, you know, the, the message I keep giving to everyone who will listen to me is use a password manager, and they all ignore me. Amen. I love. I am really loving 1Password, by the way. You shouldn't tell them which password manager you use, man. Well, everybody, somebody's going to email me and say, what, what password do you recommend? I, I, I recommend 1Password. All right. There Fair we enough. go. All right. Moving on to our next story. This, By the way, we we were not paid to say that. No, nope. but but you could pay us. Uh, that's true. If uh, I don't even know who makes one password, if <laughs> if you want to throw, if you want to leave a bag of money outside my house, I'm sure. As one of the few vendors, we have not chased off the show yet. Yet, <laughs> it's early yet. <laughs> All right. So and remind uh, me before the end of the show, I do have one story I want to share from my travels too. So whatever is appropriate in the narrative. Very good. All right. Let's see. Uh, next story comes from a local, uh, local. Uh, I don't even know what media affiliate this is. Anyway, it's uh, azfamily.com. It's, an, it's a local Arizona news outlet. The title is School Fires IT Manager Who Warned of Security Breach. And... This is really interesting, and and I think it probably hits home for a lot of people who, uh, who who have seen their respective employers engaging in bad or risky behavior, and 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 have tried to warn said employer, uh, you know, against that. And you know, obviously, there's a lot of he said, she said. We don't actually know exactly what happened, other than that this uh, the Maricopa County community colleges uh, database of 2.4 million student and faculty records like um, I'm not even exactly sure what all is composed of that but I assume it's the normal the normal food groups the name address phone number social security number date of birth all that all that good stuff um in any event uh, the FBI apparently found that little pot of data for sale on some underground market in uh, 2013. And um, they, at the time, they said they were going to go off and find the guilty in in their organization. And apparently they found the guilty, and it was their IT manager, a person named Miguel Corzo. When you say guilty, what do you mean? Well, so if you read the if you read some of the previous stories about this, the school board basically said that they were going to go through their their uh, the ranks of their employees to find out uh, who might have been culpable in in so their organization. When you say guilty that way, it's are you implying that this particular IT manager went and sold this information? No, guilty in that uh, he was res- he was negligent. Correct. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, it, so, so apparently, Mr. Corzo 
claims that he notified what and by the way the the actual details of what happened are are not available right so we don't know exactly what happened right we know that the data was stolen we know that uh the 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 school board had to go public and disclose this and uh and apparently this mr corzo notified the school board about 12 times they said over 12 times in 2012 and again this is kind of opaque we don't really know exactly what the composition of that was but in any event uh he was pleading his case about this uh before the school board who then promptly went into uh, uh went went behind closed doors and voted to terminate him and uh, apparently also one of the school board members uh i don't know if she did resign or she was threatening to resign in protest over this so it's it's kind of a a weird situation but you know i i know having run this podcast i've had i'll say quite a few people over the you know two years i guess almost uh email me and 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 ask for advice about you know my employer is doing something risky or so this is i think a really common kind of a situation and you know i you don't often see it happen so you know play out so publicly but i thought this was kind of an interesting thing where apparently somebody did what he thought was was right warned his employer the worst then happened and he got fired for it so what's our lesson learned or takeaway do you think uh have your personal disaster recovery plan <laughs> I think that's absolutely fair. <laughs> uh, you, you don't. We don't know everything, right? We don't know what sort of internal politics. It's entirely possible and likely that the leadership there on the school board is just wackadoo, right, and just slam this guy. But it's also possible, though I'm thinking less likely, that perhaps he had trouble communicating the risk well, which goes back to something we've talked about on a couple of shows ago. One of the roles of being in a senior senior security role is being able to communicate risk well and sell your position well, whether we like it or not. It's it it feels slimy to a, a you know pure technical person to be able to have to figure out a way to sell their position. But life is influence to get what you want. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross about it and always be closing and that kind of thing. But it is communication. It is communicating your point effectively. So I don't know, but there's a part of me that wonders if some of that went on and if there was some sort of uh, you know, other stuff wrapped up in this. But nonetheless, it's entirely possible that this guy was trying to do the right thing and, and, and you know, I don't want to blame the victim here unnecessarily, but it's very possible that he just was the scapegoat. Which happens. That's one reason why CISOs don't last forever. They could be begging for money and pointing out risk. And if the executive boards who control the funding say, nope, sorry, deal with it, and then something happens, CISO yeah. goes. Right. And, I, well, you know, I think, I think at some point you, you, have to, you have to make your own personal decision about, you know, if you – again, we don't know exactly what happened here, right? But if you're in a difficult position where you see something – you know, untoward happening and you, you raise it and it's not being addressed and it's likely going to fall on you. You know, you, you probably have to do what's right for you personally. And that could not be a comfortable thing to have to do. Right. The upside is we have like negative levels of unemployment in the IT security industry at the moment. So that's at least one positive where this guy hopefully finds a good job. The downside, he was working for a school system, which does not speak well of his skill set. Is that a little harsh? That was a little harsh. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure we'll find a nice nonprofit. <laughs> that was a little harsh. Ah, <laughs> yes. So uh, before we before we go any further on that one, <laughs> I think I just lost half of our listeners on yep. that one. I'm sorry. Yep. Yes. All right. Moving on. Our next story comes from Dark Reading, and the title is "Ram Scraper Malware: Why PCI DSS Can't Fix Retail." But but. Compliance but, but equals security. But it's compliance. It's compliant. I don't understand. So so the story here, and I, I'm sure 
unless you've been in living under a rock, you understand RAM scraper malware. You know, the, the, the whole idea here is that PCI DSS does indeed require encryption of your payment card information. Can I say one thing? Go for it. It absolutely cracked me up as I'm reading this article. And dark reading has to explain hard drives and flash memory and RAM. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, I know, I know. I'm not good, by the way, I'm not going to explain hard drives and flash memory. If, (laughs) if, If I have to. We're the wrong podcast. Security, uh, what is the what is that other uh, uh, security now? Yes, that's the one. That's the that's the podcast for you. So anyhow, and by the way, I don't mean listeners. that. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying uh-huh. this. Uh-huh. You start bumping up against twenty listeners, and you start throwing punches. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So uh, so anyhow, um, back back to the story. The the deal is that you know PCI requires that you encrypt the data, encrypt your your card data, which is a sensible thing, right? But the the requirements are for encryption and at rest and encryption in flight, right? But the which which seems intuitive that that might be all there is, but it's not, and uh, and so what what has erupted as a kind of a cottage industry is is basically uh, creating malware that looks basically essentially scans the memory on your point of sale terminals for unencrypted card information before it can be written or transmitted. And uh, and, and so PC, this is just a blind spot in PCI. And you know you have to ask the question, well what PCI do, right? I mean, you, you know, it it's this is not solvable by installing PGP on the hard drive or, you know, setting up an S-tunnel connection or routing, you know, this is a difficult thing. Now you are talking about having to have a, you know, your your point of sale software has to work differently or your card reader physically has to work differently. And uh, I think this is a difficult problem to solve. Uh, and, and it's not going to be a simple problem to solve. But the point that this article is trying to make is, PCI can't fix this problem, right? And so you've got you've got this entire industry who's very, very reliant on PCI as rightly or wrongly as safe harbor, right? They see they see being PCI compliant as safe harbor, and I don't think that's right. But uh, you know, they that's 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 where it is, and so you know, this is a. This is a difficult, difficult problem, and so that the uh, the recommendations in this article, which I, I think are pretty sensible, is that you really have to work with your vendors to make sure that you're buying you're buying equipment that doesn't have this loophole, and that you know maybe someday PCI DSS will be prescriptive in this area. And I can't imagine that they won't, right? Because this is becoming a big a big trend, uh, but. You know, it's it's not currently now. So uh, I also found it interesting. They pointed out that uh, uh, there there were a couple of recommendations from US CERT on this problem. I re- I remember when US CERT came out with this a while ago, and uh, and, and it totally doesn't address the problem, right? You know, their their recommendations are basically use antivirus, keep your software up to date, uh, have a firewall. Uh, you know, so it was uh, it was basically things that really wouldn't address the the core problem. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, the other way to approach this, they talk about having good hardened operating systems that don't allow memory sharing amongst processes and all that sort of jazz. I agree with that, right? But we've got hundreds of thousands of Windows XP based POS terminals out there with every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and those aren't going to change overnight. That, so exactly right, exactly right. So the other option is a wholesale change, like we've talked about for a while, of chip and pin. Yeah, and you know, I've, you I've, know, I've, and, and originally when we start talking about smart card uh, and embedded chips on these 
cards. It was because we were encrypting on the card. And what was being sent across the wire was, in essence, ciphertext. Yeah, it's my understanding after having read a little bit more about chip and pin is is that it's actually still vulnerable to some of these attacks, oh, and that the, well that the chip the chip and pin set is really authenticating the reader, and it is intended to to stop the the um, the skimmer type attack. Oh, and and so so what it ha- what it does is, and uh, this is re- it's really quite interesting, right? So. Uh, if if you have a chip and pin card, you you know you you you're essentially somewhat uh, pre- you know, <laughs> ideally protected against a skimmer. But here's the here's where it goes horribly wrong. At at some point, the pan and your your CVV and and what whatnot end up getting transited across the wire. So if they can pick if the bad guys can pick that up, they can. They can use that information for online fraud, right? They, or they can use it to create a to, to you know create a card that uh, a duplicate card that doesn't have the chip and pin. Right? They can't create a new chip and pin card, and and so the problem you know, where, where it gets gets kind of crazy is that um, they've got we've got to solve two more problems. Number one is we have to come up with a better way to authenticate online purchases uh, so that, so that you, you, you know, you can't use the pan and, you know, the CVV. And then the second problem is uh, we, at some point have to go wholesale away from the, uh, the, the, just the mag stripe reader. And once we do that, then, you know, it's all great, but you know, I don't think that'll happen in my lifetime. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, Thanks for clearing that up. I hate to put out bad info. Uh, well, I, I, to be honest, I had the same misunderstanding, and and uh, so I went and read about it uh, recently in my copious free time over this past <laughs> week. So, well, good, so. good info. Anyhow, um, yeah. So, <clears throat> the one of the one of the things I wanted to to kind of harp on this about is this. I think is symptomatic of the problem with the with the big security frameworks, right? Is that they often have blind spots and they're all, they're often used as kind of safe Harbor type, um, you know, type constructs where you, you feel like if you're, if you're HIPAA compliant or you're PCI compliant, you know, you're not going to lose the PHI or the, the credit cards. But the reality is, you know, that's, that's a kind of a meets minimum, type of thing and it's not going to address new and developing threats it's a it's a you know it was it was developed by a committee at a point in time some time some time ago and you know the world's changed so anyhow that's uh that's my my rant on that so no it's fair you know i think ultimately we're always fighting the last threat when we're dealing with compliance issues so absolutely that's a great way to put it all right, so our next uh, and last story actually is, um, although we'll get to yours, is uh, from Krebs on Security, and the title is Hackers Plunder Israeli Defense Firms That Built Iron Dome Missile Defense System. And uh, wow, this is uh, you know another, another crazy APT type deal where apparently, uh, allegedly, the, uh, the the blueprints and related information associated with this Iron Dome missile system, which basically is a you know kind of a missile battery that intercepts um, you know rogue missiles into your territory, uh, and apparently there were three defense contractors in Israel that were uh, that were compromised between 2011 and 2012, and. Uh, in the uh, apparently in the ensuing investigation, they found a lot of similarities between these attacks and what uh, what Mandiant had reported the APT one deal. Uh, they they found some of the same CNC infrastructure and tactics and and whatnot. So like so so there is an association that this the comment crew group is responsible for this and uh, they. 
stole about they're saying about 762 megabytes of email blueprints drawings from a company called AIA uh, sorry IAI uh, and what was interesting is that a lot of the data actually stolen from all three companies originated from the US and I've I've spent some time working in uh, the export business and and so I know most of this information is almost certainly ITAR controlled, international traffic and arms regulations. And basically, uh, the, the U.S. government requires you to uh, to have an export license to sell it to uh, or to transfer that technology to a non-U.S. person or a non-U.S. company. And uh, what, what's what's crazy here is I, I'm, I'm sure these U.S. companies that came up with this information went to hell and back to sell this stuff to these Israeli companies. And and now, you know, their intellectual property just walked out the door. And and so, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's not only watch out who your vendor is, but watch out who your customers are, right? Because uh, this, is, this is probably pretty valuable intellectual property for, those U.S. defense companies, although that's not really a big theme in the story, um, you know, it's it, it, that's one of the takeaways I had. Uh, <clears throat> other than you know, just the general concept that the weakest link might not be all that obvious, right? You know, if if you're a U.S. company and you know you're doing business with with uh, third parties overseas, I guess maybe third parties anywhere, you you know you uh, you might see your stuff uh, being being stolen. Um, it, they go on to, to point out that smaller contractors, especially in the military industrial spaces, uh, have a have a bigger problem than the larger ones, right? Because the bigger companies have some economy of scale and they can afford to spend a really significant amount of money on, on uh, IT security. Whereas some of these smaller companies, presumably like the ones in Israel, uh, can't really afford to spend that much, and uh, so anyhow, it's it's an interesting read. If you go through, if you read through it, you can kind of get the same types of uh, ta- you know tactics and procedures where they you know they get in through phishing emails, they compromise uh, Active Directory domain controllers, they move around, and they're in for months before they eventually steal the data. So you know, feel like a feel like a broken record there. Yeah, it's an interesting one, and it makes you wonder, you know, yet again, do we need to move back to securing data with the data, right? And wrapping really good DLP and other type technologies around it. I don't know. You know, we don't know exactly how this stuff happened, and it's it's dangerous stuff. But you would think when you're dealing with arms and and this sort of really tightly controlled information, they would be a little better. But this is also the holy grail kind of stuff. And Iron Dome is interesting. I mean, it has some really, in theory, smart intelligence where it can very quickly identify the track of the inbound and estimate where it's going to impact and only fire uh, an interceptor based on whether or not that impact zone is a populated area or not, which is kind of clever. Interesting. So, yeah, it's, uh, I've done a little reading on it. It's, it's a clever system, and I'm not getting anywhere near the politics of Gaza, Palestine, Israel, <laughs> just... I'm just saying the technology itself is interesting. So also yeah, it's, something it, it sounds like it's been pretty effective. I mean, again, staying away from the politics, it sounds like it's, it's somewhat effective. There's a lot of interesting debate on that right now. There's some people saying it's highly effective. Other people saying, no, that it's only intercepting like one in 10. But when you know that is selective in what it goes in an intercept, I would find it being more interesting. How many did it launch against an interceptor against yeah. and hit? Yeah. Uh, it- that, why? Right, right. It sounds like, a, just from listening to the news report, it sounds like a lot of the missiles that are being sent in aren't ending up hitting populated areas. So that kind of makes sense to me. But, Which is odd because Israel's such a small country. You know, you think pretty good odds you'd hit a populated. Uh, don't know. Hey, I, I, I've been, hey, I can say this because I've been to Israel. That makes me an expert. Well, good. Good. In fact, I, <laughs> I have, have to not. Tell you. I have to keep telling CNN, no, I won't be on your show. 
That was <sighs> commentary on CNN experts, just so you know that was actually. And, and so now CNN is off the list. No doubt about it. All right, so um, so that was uh, you know that was what I had on on that one. You had you said you had a story. I did, I did. So I'll kind of freeform this. I hadn't prepared this, so take it for what it's worth. But I was having a conversation with a customer today, and interesting customer, mid-sized uh, public company, and they were curious about services that would tell them when a hacker or hackers are talking about them or that they've become a higher priority target in the hacking community. Interesting. In essence. And we're not talking about something that finds when data has been exfiltrated and dropped somewhere. It's the dark web has been monitored and has found internet chatter that says your company's about to get it. And it was interesting, right? I mean, this is something obviously I've, I've looked into before and talked about it. And I said, okay, great. Let's say you find out that somebody's talking about your company. What are you going to do? How does that change your reaction? Call the internet police, right? <laughs> I said, how does that change anything? If you knew tomorrow that some guy, bad guy was going to launch a... Uh, attack against you, but you didn't know anything about the type of attack, and they're not going to be that silly to tell you, but, you know. Let's say they were. Let's say there was going to be a phishing attack. And they told you it was going to be a phishing attack. You've got 24 hours. What are you going to do? Well, you might educate your people a little bit. But what I was trying to get them to see is, it doesn't matter if you get a warning ahead of time or not. You're still going to be a target, the attack is still going to happen. And what you've built in your defenses before that moment in terms of technology, people, process, alerting, is what matters. And I thought I'd bounce it off you and see what you thought. So so here's a cynical view on that. And, and by the way, I agree. I agree with you. you know, most, most all of these things that you would learn about require significant preparation in the weather. And, and so that tells me that whether they know it or not, they're probably looking for one thing, and that is to be able to tell their boss or their CEO or whatever that an attack is inbound because no one likes for their boss to find out something without them having had a chance to, uh, you know, to, to forewarn them. And, and that's, you know, I, I have to wonder, is is that, you know, is that the point? Is the point just to get some heads up so they can go and do some, uh, you know, go go tell the boss, hey. In this case, uh, this particular customer, no, no. This okay. was purely, they saw some nice dancing ponies from a vendor. Uh, okay. <laughs> And and thought it was a clever concept, but when you get them to actually think through how you're going to use this data, it started to fall apart for them. And I get it, right? It's a sexy concept. It's this really hardcore threat intelligence, so you can know what the enemy's up to. And there are people out there pimping that right now, and I get it. And there's probably some good, valid use cases, but if you're not a pretty sophisticated company, you know, I was trying to give some odds around this. Let's say, and this is just me completely pulling numbers out of my ass. Let's say one out of every 30 real attacks, your threat intelligence, dark web provider warns you is coming. Right? So you've got one out of every 30, you know about. Do we start building a false sense of security? Do we start building you know, well, I didn't hear about it ahead of time. I, I really, I just don't see the value. I don't see, it wouldn't change the way I would go about defending my environment because a properly defended environment assumes this could happen at any time of many different types of attacks. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know what kind of dancing ponies they saw, but I wonder if they were if they were told they would get um, more actionable intelligence than they might really be getting, like IP well, addresses or things like that. You know, you could get things like indicators of compromise, but that's that's not what they were talking about. They were talking about dark web sort of chatter, 
right? That right. that they're on the hacker hit list. I get that if, especially if you're a political company, which is, this company was not. Um, you might want to know if anonymous is targeting you. But again, I go back to what would you do differently then? I mean, you could maybe like work your IT security folks double time for a week or two. You could step up your posture, but that's a short term proposition. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, um, Bob uh, has been on the receiving end of intelligence uh, from for his organization. You know that where, where they they got uh, heads up right on on somewhat nonspecific threats. Those from, are useful. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I would I I would kind of equate it to what you're describing, right? It was you know some somebody uh, somebody saw some chatter on IRC and you know thre- were, were were threatening to um, DDoS or you know any number of different things to to Bob's organization and. Uh, and essentially, what they did was was exactly what you described, right? They put everybody on alert. They notified their ISPs that they, you know, that a threat had been made, and you know, they they, you know, they put their SOC on notice and all of all of those kinds of things. I think at the end of the day, I I would like to to think that you know Bob's company is smart enough that you know they don't. They don't have to have an imminent threat to be, you know, appropriately monitoring their their stuff, right? I mean, that right. Sh- that you don't know. You 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 made a, a really great point. You're not going to get notified, no matter how good that service is. You're not going to get notified, except in some percentage of the cases. And so the all the other all the other cases, it's going to be a complete surprise. And you damn well better be prepared for it. Yeah, you know, we talked dozens of shows ago about the concept of removing the crisis out of incident response. Yes. And that goes to this. If you've built your incident response capability and your defense capability so it's not a crisis, then it shouldn't change your posture when this were to occur. I get it, though. It's a sexy concept. If you're If you're an IT exec... You know, wow, yeah, let's let's get us some threat intelligence and find out when the bad guys are talking to us. And, you know, I get it. But when you really critically think it through, I'm not sure what it really does for you. Yeah. And I'll yeah. probably get some hate mail for some vendors from, on this. And, you know, and, I, and if I were those vendors, I probably would never sell to a technical person because they would do exactly what I would do and think through the process and go, no, nope. you know, go sell to the CIO, right? Because... They they like big concepts and they don't get down in the weeds. So, well, I mean, I, I guess if your if your organization is confident that your uh, that, that your threat intelligence service is going to uh, you know is going to alert you to everything that that's coming down the line, and you have some actionable thing that you're going to do differently that you can't do all the time for some economic reason, then it might make sense. I just can't think of any realistic scenario that that would actually happen maybe a ddos it gives you time to call the isp ahead of time maybe maybe yeah um but even that i mean i've i've been in a hundred and one of those goat rodeos and you know you you always you always have to wait for it to start right it's i don't know color me cynical but i'm (laughs) I'm hoping I spread some good today by getting them to really think through it and and think about what would you do with this info. And that's what I would challenge the listeners. Great. If, if you're looking at that, think about, okay, how is that really going to play out when you get that info? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, again, other than putting people on notice and, and whatnot, but, you know, hopefully, hopefully you don't have to. You don't have to wait for that. You know, I, I, I can I can absolutely see calling up your AV vendor saying, I want somebody on on call, you know, or or your your DDoS mitigation provider, you know, and we're going to have a conference bridge open. I uh, maybe how long? How long is that going to last? That's the question. I mean, that's the problem, right? That's the down. That's the other side of it. Is that it's it's kind of nonsensical. It's like a feel good thing. 
And hell, if I'm a bad guy and I know you're triggering off that, oh I'll just start sprinkling it out there. Let, don't get me started. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. You know, I don't want to piss off anonymous, right? But I think that's anonymous is that's that's what anonymous is now. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I, by the way, we're, our show will now be gone. This will be the last. Show. <laughs> uh, yes. No, yes. and and that is highly effective, right? They have convinced people that they are all powerful, right? And and so now the threat of anonymous carries a lot of weight, and. Yeah, I'm. I'm really still mad that they absconded with the Guy Fox mask from V for Vendetta because they don't deserve it. <laughs> oh dear. So, any uh, any any parting thoughts? No, I think I think we pretty much killed the the topics. Aside from the fact that neither of us are a black hat or DefCon because we're lame. Yeah, yeah. One of these years. I used to go every year. I, I went like four or five years in a row, and then life got in the way. Well, aren't you fancy? Uh, well, I don't know. It is what it is. Now, now you're just too cool. So you're like a you're like a infosec hipster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I think is the only time anyone has ever applied the term hipster to me. Uh, I went to I went to DefCon before it was cool. Uh, hey, I, hey, I was there when I was at Alexis Park. If that counts for anything. <laughs> See, but it also there, means I'm just old. There you go. There you go. All right, but we will we will be at at DerbyCon. We will. It's true. Um and you and I should sync up on uh, our plans. Yeah, well, let's hang out we, after that. We might even have some defensive security podcast swag. That's right. That's right. I mean, it will be the really cheap bad swag that other companies couldn't give away that we rebranded. That, you but know, it'll felt. be swag, nonetheless. Yeah. Well, we'll be scratching out, you know, the Paul.com's Security <laughs> Weekly. <laughs> Steve Gibson, Security Now, says you already pissed him off today. That's right. We love you all. We we harbor no ill will to towards anyone. Speak for yourself. Except for the bad guys. All right. Let's uh, let's end this this. <laughs> Now, hour and a half long. Oh well, beast. So, if you uh, if you enjoy the show, give us some uh, give us some love on iTunes. Give us a rating. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback or or comments for the show, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity dot org. You can find all of the back episodes on the website at www.defensivesecurity.org and you can find links to all of the stories that we talked about and uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec you can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and you can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink and uh, you know the podcast God's willing and all of my equipment uh, cooperating we will talk to you again next week see you bye 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 bye